Very well, boys. You want me? You're listening to the voice of Buzz, a 10-year-old boy with autism who I know well. Buzz isn't his real name, of course. I chose it in honor of one of the many Disney movies Buzz managed to learn a good deal of language from. Toy Story. Like many children on the autism spectrum, Buzz echoes what he has heard from his favorite movies and TV shows. In fact, he's been quite inventive in the way he's adapted this language. For instance, if he wants you to stop talking, he might tell you to stop. Or, he might emphatically say, Silence! Think wizard from The Wizard of Oz. Echolalia, or delayed echolalia, is one of the many features we ascribe to many, if not most, kids on the spectrum. It's almost as universal as the sensory processing difficulties that these kids face. But do we really understand echolalia, what it is, or why our kids are using it? Today, we try to answer those questions with the help of Marge Blanc, a speech pathologist from Madison, Wisconsin, who runs the nonprofit Communication Development Center. So stay tuned to episode six of the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. Another edition of the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen, and I am so excited to bring you today's episode featuring Marge Blanc from the Communication Development Center in Madison, Wisconsin. Marge is director of that clinic, as well as the author of the book, Natural Language Acquisition on the Autism Spectrum, The Journey from Echolalia to Self-Generated Language. When I first saw Marge speak at the ASHA convention back in November of 2013, I knew immediately that I had to have her on this podcast. She generously agreed, and I drove to Madison to spend the day with her during my spring break. Her book, as well as the conversations we had both on and off the air, resonated with me in a way that can't be described in a mere sentence. So rather than try to do that, I'm going to jump right into our talk in just a second. A couple of notes before I do. One, please keep an eye out for the show notes and links found at my website, conversationsinspeech.com. Two, due to the length of the conversation, I decided to divide this podcast into two episodes, so be on the lookout for episode seven soon. Without further ado, I give you Marge Blanc. Okay, so I'm here today with Marge Blanc in Madison, Wisconsin on a cold April day. Marge, I want to thank you so much for having me here and showing me around your clinic and everything that you do. Well, you've been mostly just tripped up by all of the beautiful lycra that we have hanging every place that's drying. We're cleaning our lycra today. Oh, is that what it was? Okay. <laughs> yes. I see all this lycra hanging and I thought to myself at first, maybe it was maybe it was hanging as a sound insulation. I thought maybe we were rec- recording in that room. <laughs> we really didn't get the full tour. And so I'll take you in. We'll, sh- we'll look at the swings later and you can play a little bit. Okay. I can't okay. wait to see it. Um, all right. So I have um, just a ton of ground to cover with you today. And I was actually thinking this might actually take up two podcasts, depending on how much uh, content we have. But we'll see. But uh, okay, so here's what we want to cover today. We want to cover natural language acquisition, the hallmark of your work here at Communication Development Center, Um, kind of the history of NLA as you see it, and you know what influence what influenced you to come to uh, this this approach. 
and uh, how it can be applied in everyday situations. Um, but first, I think the listeners might want to know a little bit about yourself, and maybe you can give us a little introduction to the work you do, and you know, again, how you came to this. Point. Sure. Um, well, I began um, in public schools and worked in many, many different public schools um, over the years, uh, all the way from Los Angeles to Idaho to Canada. And when I came to Madison, because my husband came to Madison, um, a friend of mine from back in school had asked me if I would be a clinical um, supervisor in the ComDIS department here at UW. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for three years. It was a temporary position. But it happened to be the time that kids with autism were beginning the first LOVAS replication study um, in Madison. And some of those kids were having some difficulties. And um, so my first, first little kid in the clinic in Madison was one of those kids who we later realized was very dyspraxic. Or we could call it a praxia of speech, but it's really a more whole body dyspraxia that so many of the kids exhibit. Um, so after three years in the clinic there um, on campus, um, I had quite a number of little kids with autism and families were saying, so if we aren't going to do this anymore, Marge, what are we going to do? So I went and rented a room and we started the Communication Development Center in 1997. Um, after three years, uh, my savvy partner um, recognized that we were going to need a higher ceiling. The kids were growing and we needed more resistance and we needed to climb and swing and do all these things. And so we moved over here into this building and we have these beautiful high ceilings and we'll make you jump into the uh, Lycra swings and make you jump off the loft into the Lycra and down mm -hmm. the sl what we call the slatter, which is like a slide and a ladder made out of Lycra. So oh, okay. you have that to look forward all to. Right. So we've been here since 2000 and we kind of grew the clinic along with the kids. Mm -hmm. You know, at first having a um, eight foot trampoline was enough. Then we needed a 10 foot trampoline. Then we needed a big trampoline and we needed it to be built into a room so that we could create spaces where the kids were safe yeah. and we didn't have to say no. Mm -hmm. Because I, th I think that was my, my guiding principle in a way, besides Temple Grandin. She was always my guiding principle at every step along the way, just just tangentially. I mean, she didn't know that she was, but mm -hmm. she was. Everything I, ran, I did, I ran by, you know, my, my channeling of Temple Grandin. Mm -hmm. And um, so then the other principle was that we didn't want to have to say no to kids because they heard no all the time. Mm -hmm. And so we have the clinic set up. We have lots of students from the university who come and work with us as either SLPAs, uh, assistants, or play partners, or communication partners. We have a PT who consults with us. We have several different OTs who consult with us. And if we can find somebody who's great with music, we just make them sit down with their guitar and not leave for a long time. I mean, whoever has a talent... Um, that the kids can learn from, mm -hmm. we we bring in. And when I say learn from, I simply mean that the kids already have the talent. But because so many of us, us SLP types, are not right-brained enough to be able to see some of the giftednesses, if that's a word, that yeah. our kids have, it takes a real village. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you've so building this center, I'd like you to talk about, you know, again, going... Uh, 
at what point in your career, because uh, for those of you who had, for those of the listeners who haven't read your book, um, I wanted to kind of now segue into the, the influence of Barry Brezant, Brezant and Weatherby and their ideas of echolalia and how that fits into the paradigm, what you, what you do here. Right. Well, you know, you weren't around in the old days, but I was. <laughs> and so was Barry Present. <laughs> and so back in the old days, I know that you, you know, you know the, all of the Chomsky era, at least from reading the archives, you know, mm-hmm. of, in our field. But, you know, there was a day and age in our field when grammar was everything. And we were looking at deep grammar, and we were looking at all kinds of things before the semantic you know, revolution took place before the pragmatic revolution took place before the social communication revolution took place. So back when syntax was big, um, people were looking at the things about syntax that were different in different populations. And it was the days of you know, uh, like at Northwestern, there was Laura Lee who did developmental sentence scoring. And there were many, many others that kind of erupted during that time. Well, in the late 70s was when Barry Prezant was getting his PhD. And he had, you know, it was the early days of, of research in our field also. So qualitative research that we think now, you know, is is kind of cutting edge in a sense. You know, it was around back in those days when the the i guess um the requirements of methodology and statistics weren't as stringent as they are today so he followed four kids for a year and obviously learned a lot about those kids. I mean, this is all on the heels of Lois Bloom and, and all of mm-hmm. those folks who tape recorded their kids at Mommy home. Sock. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so um, he did his, his dissertation then mm-hmm. on what he learned. And he said, you know, he, he, he has many more modern renditions of what he did back in those days. But as he said, you know, he could tell and the parents could tell and everybody around them could tell that these kids were communicating with their echolalia. So then um, other folks um, did research with Barry Present as he kind of branched out. And so Amy Weatherby and Patrick Rydell and others did um, the whole series of research um, design papers that came out in the 80s and into the 90s. And even into the 90s, there were, like the um, Kathleen Quill book, had Mm -hmm. a wonderful chapter on what to do about echolalia. Mm -hmm. And those of us, I mean, you would... Are talking about the Do, Watch, Listen, Say book? Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the the era anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I think the Kathleen Quill book was about autism. Well, it wasn't actually that book, but it was was, um, the book about, um, a paperback book about... um, treating children with autism. Mm -hmm. And the one chapter in that book was specifically about echolalia Mm -hmm. and specifically about language gestalts Mm -hmm. or holes that um, kids were, you know, pre-wired to break down. And, you know, the, the kind of the irony about echolalia and autism, and I'm now off of my timeline story here a Mm -hmm. little bit, but the irony of echolalia and autism is that echolalia is not 
just about autism at all. I mean, you know, we go back to the the Ann Peters linguistics, um, which she put together in the 70s, like it was 1973, her book first came out, and then she she did some more with it, it came out again in 83, and then she put it on her website um, in 2002. So it's downloadable mm-hmm. from Ann Peters um, in Hawaii um, uh, website. But it's a beautiful documentation of what kids do at their first beginning stages of language development. And it all has to do with, as she would call it, and others called it the same thing at the time, but a unit of language, a Mm -hmm. unit of meaning, a unit of sound. And so if kids heard a long intonational contour, it was a unit. And Today, it's the same thing. It's still a unit. Mm -hmm. So that process has been well-known, not well-known. Let's go back here. I mean, linguistics certainly um, was known in our field, but but we didn't necessarily, SLPs in our training, didn't necessarily spend a long time with linguistics per se. So it wasn't necessarily well-known, but certainly those researchers back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s were using the Ann Peters material. And so as, um, it, as one of those researchers said at, at that time, Ann Peters documented that kids off the spectrum used echolalia mean, meaningfully. Kids and Barry Prezant determined through his research, that kids on the spectrum used echolalia as well. So back in those days, it was accepted as a known quantity. Now, the the breakdown, I think, is many-fold. Um, our field shifted. Um, not so many people were really looking at syntax as time went on. Um, the numbers of kids with autism diagnoses rose, mm-hmm. and most of us were in public schools, and we had large caseloads, and we didn't really know um, how to manage um, kids in an academic environment when they really couldn't even have something available to them to make a choice. Mm-hmm. And so teachers, educators, SLPs, you know, parents, families, everybody were scratching their heads coming trying to come up with ways that kids could make just choices. Mm-hmm. So obviously in those days something like PEX was beautiful. Um, that those kinds of systems became the rule isn't bad in and of itself, but what was left behind was this natural language development that the kids on the spectrum and other kids who use echolalia. Those kids got kind of left behind. So um, in the CERTS model, echolalia is certainly um, a part of um, the description of a child on the spectrum. And obviously, you know, we know that echolalia, I think most of us know that echolalia is a hallmark of kids with autism. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the kind of way that it's often said is that if a child is verbal, um, and I think we ought to put in parentheses intelligible, mm-hmm. um, but if a, if a child is intelligible to us, um, the, the chances are fairly great that he's going to be echolalic. 
Um, so that is part of the CERTS model, but there's not a delineated how-to mm-hmm. to go through um, the mitigation process. And obviously we, we need to talk about that more, yeah. but to go through the mitigation process and the isolation of the single word process to help those kids basically catch up with their analytic counterparts. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the kids who start their language development um, progression with the single word are the kids that we find intelligible mm-hmm. because they are referential. They are, they're pointing to something that we have just pointed to. We say ball, they say ba, and mm-hmm. we call it intelligible because we just gave them the model and they said it pretty it. well. Yeah. But what if they just said, ah, and we'd mm-hmm. still give them credit for saying ball, mm-hmm. even if their intelligibility was limited. But the little kid who starts in a gestalt way is saying a long, long unit of meaning, taking the 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 way that Ann Peters describes it. And so maybe it's um, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, G, G, L, M, P. Everybody slurs over elemental P, but if you slur over the entire alphabet song, you've got to have a little bit of the melody to have it become intelligible, right? Yeah, yeah. So just to back up, um, we're talking about two different types of language learners, analytic versus gestalt, and that a lot of the kids, or say most of the kids uh, on the spectrum who are using echolalia, are using the Gestalt uh, method for learning language. Um, I think you also said in your book it's it's more likely that girls develop as analytic ling- language users. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. And so to bring us forward then, and you really hammer this home uh, well in your book as well as your articles, that we seem to kind of have lost our way after uh, with all the research on grammar and the you know and syntax and the emphasis on uh, solid language. And we've kind of moved into what I would, you know, I think, think for lack of a better word, a developmental, I'm sorry, not a developmental, but more of a behavioral, behavioral model uh, for a lot of autism, for a lot of uh, name brand you know, programs in autism today. Would you say that's the case? Well, yes, but I don't think there's anybody necessarily at fault, if you will, um, in that regard. I mean, there's many reasons for it, but I think one is just sheer size of the population. Mm -hmm. And if the main thing that's happening in schools is we're trying to give kids the opportunity to make choices and SLPs are trying to help teachers figure out ways of using some kind of augmentation to communication, then we don't really have a lot of time left to be thinking, oh, I did hear him sing, you know, the, the jingle for the the new um, Oreos cookies. Um, oh, what, what, how did that go? And by then you're on to your next kid and there really isn't time to sit down and think about might that have been something that was very gestalt for him and might he have been saying, in fact, you know, I love those cookies. I mean, can you believe it, how round they are and beautiful and they've got all those different colors inside now and, you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, I think that it's just, it's, it's hard. It's, yeah. it's not easy to do. But I think that there are many reasons that we've kind of lost the developmental progression, <clears throat> excuse me, in our minds. And I think that part of the reason that we've lost that is that um, we have not seen kids go through this natural mitigation 
process in our own experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about this being a, a natural process, like you say, that is often a natural process for kids off the spectrum and often little boys, it happens early in life. Mm-hmm. It happens when they're, you know, really little. And so they're two, three years old when we don't expect to be able to understand kids all that well anyway. And especially little boys, you know, we just say, well, they're boys, you know, they're mm-hmm. using, you know, they're still babbling or they're using jargon or we just don't worry about it. But by the time a child on the spectrum is intelligible enough that we can say, oh, that was the Oreo commercial. Um, he's seven or mm-hmm. eight or nine or ten. And then it calls attention to itself. It know? does. Yeah. And we, we panic. And I don't mean mm-hmm. SLPs, but everybody panics yeah. uh, because we say we've got to teach him something functional. He's yeah. got to have some functional phrases that he can use. What if he gets stuck? What if he gets lost? What if he gets hurt? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we give him some functional phrases? And so we do. And we give him scripts. And I say we, and I mean the collective everybody. Yeah. You know, whether it's, you know, coming from um, an educational perspective or from a, you know, in-home um, ABA perspective or an SLP trying to do the right thing perspective mm-hmm. or a parent. I mean, we all do that. And so it's not anybody's fault. And some of those scripts aren't even bad necessarily. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I think that SLPs are going to be able to do into the future here is recognize if you're going to introduce a functional phrase or a, you know something like a, a self-help kind of phrase or um, something that would be a, that you recognize as a script that you know what language level the child is. So that you know, is he going to be processing this as a whole unit of meaning like the Oreo song? Mm -hmm. Or is he to the point where he has mitigated enough from those large gestalts, that is broken down those large gestalts enough, that if you give him a little soundbite, maybe that's fine. And you can run with it. Yeah. Yeah. And even a single word. Maybe he's gotten to the point where he can use single words productively. Mm-hmm. And if so, we give him single word vocabulary and he's just fine. And like you say, he can run with it. And then that child, whether he's on the spectrum or not, has, quote, caught up with what we think of as being typical language development. So going from single words to two word combinations and then into early grammar. I think we have a, a really big task in front of us, though, just in terms of uh, getting the word out on what echolalia is and the true purpose, that it is purposeful, that there is a communicative aspect to it. Uh, you spoke in your book, I think you said there, you know, uh, Presant has uh, uh, cited at least seven different functions for echolalia um, and that we might not always recognize it because we can't take an, 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 a gestalt phrase uh, at literal level. And it's reading between the lines and seeing it for what it is. And one of the questions that I had, if you can comment on that, and then one of the questions I had is, um, as I've begun to look at my students uh, through the perspective of a natural language uh, development, I, I feel like I need a lot more, I guess, experience to see these gestalt for what they are. 
Does that make sense? Like I'm sure, you know, when you have, uh, for instance, new uh, clinicians working, you know, uh, at the Communication Development Center, I'm sure that you have to kind of wrap your mind around this idea of being able to really see those gestalts. And you actually talk about this in the book because you don't take just one language sample and rest on that. You need to see a kid multiple times before you get a true sense of who they are and what those gestalts mean. Right. You're absolutely right. And that is the conundrum, I think, not just for public school SLPs, for, but for every SLP. You know, my, my colleague Kristen Lee works in a hospital setting, and it wouldn't be na- what one would think of as being the most conducive for doing a lot of play and, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, you know, heavy work and climbing and swinging and such. But what she finds is in an interview with a parent, When she starts talking, just in a conversation, getting to know a parent, getting to know more about the child, that she will listen and not give a lot of opinions at first. But once she hears something that gives her the clue that the parent is able to recognize the child is talking more than the world typically acknowledges, she will give them the theory. Mm-hmm. And she will say, well, you know what? You're not wrong. And, you know, when he says, you know, um, uh, blue skidoo, and you can hear him say that every time he wants to disappear out the the front door, um, you're right. Mm-hmm. And you have, you parent, who's very savvy about your own child, is recognizing exactly what Barry Prezant is saying. Mm-hmm. So what Kristen says is that she will give a parent the the theory like this is what this is where it's going to go and parents will give her the examples. Mm-hmm. Um now I realize that in schools you don't always have the opportunity to spend you know time with with families at the level quality or quantity that you would wish but what we found in our clinic is the single most useful tool that we have is to ask parents to do a quick little movie at home of the child not presenting him with you know the best that he can offer but just natural situations at home and then we sit and listen and without anyone feeling like they need to either produce something or have the child produce something often we can hear just a little inkling of something that gives us a clue. And then we can go back to a parent and say, you know, I noticed that your child really seems to like Thomas the Tank Engine, and it seemed like he was, you know, does does he identify with one of those little trains more than another? You know, and, and, you know, parents know these things. They've tried to kind of, you know, block their memory of it because it's so dominant sometimes, Mm -hmm. but they know, (laughs) and siblings know. And that's also another thing that we found very useful is to have a sibling, um, it, you know, just have a little conversation with a sibling and say, well, when he does his, you know, Sir Topham hat imitation, what do you do? And, mm-hmm. and they'll say, well, you know, I'm always Percy, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so then you know a little bit about the scripts, if you will, yeah. that the child has chosen to play out. So we always think of scripts, well we don't always, we think of scripts in two ways. We think of scripts that kids have pulled from someplace and we think of scripts that we've taught kids. But when we look at the scripts that kids already have 
And if they've got a partner to play that with, and often the sibling is the mm-hmm. one who gets to play it, you know, if not the parent late at night, you know, the late night soliloquies, you know, still go on, mm-hmm. um, you know, then that gives us a clue. And so if we have even a toehold into that process, that child is going to say, not say literally, but feel that we are so savvy. Mm -hmm. And then when the child is playing with something, and if you have the opportunity, and at least we have those opportunities, I think pretty much everywhere, that you can have a variety of materials and the child can pick whatever he wants to play with, that if he's saying something and you hear him say it again and again and again, that often is the clue that there's something real there that nobody has acknowledged. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oftentimes classroom teachers will say that to us as SLPs, you know, well, he always says whatever it is, you know, first thing in the morning. And, okay, there's our clue. What is it about first thing in the morning? Is it is it about greeting? Is it about questioning? Is it about sharing? Is it about friendship? Because, you know, we, we often think that our kids are socially isolating mm-hmm. themselves. But in truth, it's us who are doing the social isolating because we don't get it. And so we might want to take that phrase that they use every morning and uh, refashion it as a functional phrase. Well, we <laughs> don't want to refashion it yet yeah. because it is functional if anybody understands it. Yeah, and if yeah. we are the ones who understand it, then it's functional. And so we start with the gestalts and maybe it's functional at home. And the thing is, is the child has has maybe picked it up from a, you know, a Barney movie or something or another. And maybe it was something that somebody said in a classroom. You know, we find our kids go back to Barney again and again and again because the classroom structure is so simplified and everybody gets along and they all join hands and, you know, make mm-hmm. a circle and all those things that, that the kids wish were happening. And yeah. so maybe the greeting is, you know, what's, how is, what is the phraseology of when Barney appears magically? You know, so maybe it's, maybe it's something like that, mm-hmm. that within that context, it was functional. Mm-hmm. And the child learned it from that context. And so it's functional because Barney said it, he got it. Mm-hmm. So he tries to say it with somebody else. And if, if we're the one who, you know, like, you know, the Steve on Blue's Clues or something, who gets what Blue is saying, even though the intelligibility is limited, right. it's functional. Yeah. So then, but, and, and, and I don't mean to just filibuster here because obviously your point is right. Yeah. It's just that we don't want to do that right away. And I think that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the mistake that we often, I don't mean we SLPs, everybody makes that mistake mm-hmm. is we say, oh, let's substitute real language for this. For and from saying. the kid's yeah. perspective, he's got real language. Yeah. You know, what's wrong with all you guys that you haven't you seen that episode? Yeah. You know, actually, I want to take a little tangent here. I want you to talk about the role that Disney has played in the lives of children on the spectrum. Because, we, you know, for any of us who've been working, you know, in this field and working uh, with, you know, kids on the spectrum, we know, I, you know, I wonder, I think you mentioned this at, at ASHA back in November, you know, we wonder, does Disney know the effect that they've had? Well, now that the New Yorker article has come out and now that the the documentary will become and given the the Disney, I don't know if it's sponsorship or what exactly, but but I think they do now. 
Um, but no, did they know all along the way? Probably not. But um, that again is part of this issue that you're saying about functional, because we think of we think of functional as being uh, transparent. We think of the language community as like, say, the school community or the family community as the language community, and that we need ultimately, and I think we do, to help kids move towards the language of that particular community that they are a part of. Um, But along the way, if the movie is what they relate to, and the characters in the movie are the heroes that they don't feel that they can actualize in their daily lives, then that is a little bit their community um, and their language community at the time that it, quote, works for them. Now, if you're a little kid and you are a bit hypotonic or your regulation is a little low or you have sensory motor things that interfere with you being able to move around freely in space, you know, your language community might not include the people outside of that little tiny world that you inhabit on your couch or on your little mini tramp. And so that you have, you know, the DVD player as part of what brings you language, Mm -hmm. you know, is you know, really, truly a blessing, except for the fact that it's not the language that your sister's using. Mm -hmm. Now, she can't help but hear all this, so she learns it too. And that's what we find is that the the siblings are the code switchers Mm -hmm. who can, you know, do the translation and can find the functional I, I, no, I, I fell into the functional trap, um, <laughs> but use the transparent Combined language the, the of, of the other, <laughs> yeah, the the larger language community. But but the influence is tremendous. But it's not just Disney, of course. It's it's that you know the kids fifteen years ago had VHS, and they could rewind to exactly the beginning of a particular utterance. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it'd be interesting to look at how DVDs have changed that whole phenomenon because many of our kids who are older, you look around this room and you see the old VHS tapes. Yeah. Well, our kids who are older, and I mean by that, anybody who's eight years old you know, or older, they would really like to use a VHS tape because you can rewind it to exactly the beginning of your particular mitigated gestalt you know you don't want to listen to the whole thing all over again and so many kids are kind of you know i don't want to say that they are stuck but they have no option but to listen to much more than they really wanted to listen to because they wanted to just pick out the part that said like i said and had in that one cartoon in the book the hercules you know i am hercules is really what they want to say Mm -hmm. and so they can't say i am because they haven't gotten to the level of language development that would include putting together a generative utterance like that. But they can isolate Hercules. They can't say it very well. And when they're trying to say this echolalic whole long gestalt, you know, it's got the whole history of everything in the utterance, you know, before you get to the word Hercules. So if I had any complaint 
about the Disney movies, it would be that the language isn't necessarily the way that we as SLPs and parents and teachers would wish that that would be delivered. So that is another role that we can play, and that is to give them an alternative language model that does the same thing that they're looking for in terms of their own intention. Wouldn't it be a great project to have Disney collaborate with an SLP to create a new cartoon, <laughs> maybe a new series well, with, uh, that would support th- national <laughs> I, I, I thought that, about that so much, and yeah. I'm thinking now that with this new documentary and maybe with your podcast, you know, that idea could, you know, take flight. Because I think that one of the difficulties that we mortals have had, you know, as opposed to Walt Disney, um, is that our language just isn't as interesting. And boy, is our intonation less interesting. And our visuals, you know, are just chaos and clutter. And so if we could, as you say, plan the language models for mitigation, Mm -hmm. you know. And back in what, you know, would be my early days looking at Echolalia and Gestalt, you know, which was 1997, 8, 9, and 2000, you know, the little boy who was our kind of textbook case, you know, he didn't have, he only had about four years of movie watching by that time. And so he didn't have like whole movies Mm -hmm. stored in his head except for a a couple. Um, But now a days, you know, if we don't see a child until he's maybe six or seven or eight, he may have an encyclopedic you know, repertoire in his head. Yes, yes. And so if you can start with a a child when he's four, you know, you can compete with Walt Disney. And, um, you know, and that's really, truly what we did with this little boy is we could compete because we could provide the sensory motor support Mm -hmm. that sitting and watching a movie in a sedentary place didn't offer. And so we we could offer running and jumping and playing. And this wasn't even in a fancy clinic like this this was just in a little you know typical you know grad school cubicle but we could still offer him more than sitting on a couch and you mentioned actually i think in several case examples in your book how it it just doesn't happen in in a moment or in one session where you can develop that trust with any one child that they need to feel safe comfortable you know because some of these kids have been through programs that have asked them to jump through hoops and they need to come here and know that their good language is going to be supported, that they're in a safe, caring environment. And I'm sure you've seen that over and over again. Where it's going to take a few sessions, a few, maybe a month before they feel ready to share, ready to have you help them down that path. Yeah, what a good point. Um, we had a, a very first home visit with a family last week. Um, and this little boy, six years old, um, very smart little boy, and I think that's the other mistake, of course, and it's nobody's fault, but it certainly is a mistake that's made, is we don't talk to kids in a way that really matches their receptive language because we can't measure their receptive language very well, and what we hear from them doesn't sound like they're as sophisticated as they are. So in this little boy's case... um, he had a hard time getting vocal access. So he was pretty, I don't want to say he was, he was dyspraxic so much as he just couldn't coordinate um, his breath support and phonation. And I think it had to do more with hypotonia. But at any rate, um, he wasn't, 
he didn't get his vocal access very readily. He wasn't used to people talking to him like he was an intelligent six-year-old. And um, as we were on our way over to his house, um, his younger brother, four years old, said, um, well, why are they coming? And his mom was stuck for a moment trying to think of what to say. And she said, well, they're coming to help ex-child um, with his talking. And little child, X, burst into tears. And um, his mom said, oh, no, they're not going to tell you, say this and say that. They're not, this isn't like speech in that regard. Mm-hmm. She said, this is different. Now, it took a long time, even, even then. Okay, so he stopped crying. Um, but I don't think he trusted us, certainly. Mm-hmm. And the way that trust came was as we came in the house, first of all, he looked like the typical um, child that in the old days, I, I hope we don't do this anymore, but of course we do. I'm a little tongue-in-cheek here. But the kind of child that we've called low-functioning. So he would have he would have fit in the category of the child who looks like he's not affectively involved. He doesn't no smile, no eye contact, no facial expression whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So um, as and but he likes to run, and so he and his brother were running around the house, running around the house, and I said to his mom, "Does he ever smile?" And she said, "Well, yeah, sometimes." And I said, "Well, does running?" get him to a place that he will smile because I knew he had a history of low tone but they they seemingly thought that the low tone was not an issue anymore but so that was my my hypothesis was that yeah low tone is a big deal so then she said well yeah sometimes well then something from all of the PTOT time I've had uh, consults um, in our clinic kicked in and I just knew that this boy wanted to be upside down so I just grabbed him by his legs turned him upside down and he just grinned ear (sighs) to ear now that wouldn't be something that you know if you weren't used to that kind of thing you would just rush into somebody's house and and do do but his mother then said oh yeah he's been really enjoying that lately so then he started smiling and once he started smiling he got better access to vocalization and once he got that he had better coordination with 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 his breath support and he started talking now it was either in a script he had been taught he had a little cute script that he'd been taught or something he'd pulled out of a movie which you know was a little unclear to anybody in the room what that was and where it had come from and we really didn't even know what the intention was. We had no clue. We were just basically running around the house. Mm -hmm. And so then he pulls out, he mitigates right there and then on the spot after we've done this heavy, heavy work for about an hour. So maybe schedule all SLP sessions after OTPT. That would be rule number one. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, Or at recess or right after recess. Um, But then he mitigates out three verbs from a song he knew it was a song um but it ends it was it was like um swim run eat so he says eat and goes to the table in the kitchen and sits down to eat lunch and his mother is just floored um and so basically 
right then and there. It 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 just it just made her know that in her heart of hearts she knew that this boy was smarter than he would often than he was often able to demonstrate. And so then then we talked about him coming to our clinic. I'm getting back to your question by the way. Yeah. This is actually happening. Um so he um, we're having a lot of fun. He actually doesn't want us ever, ever to leave. And so then we say, well, you can come to Bryn's place next week. And, um, and then he's thinking, oh, oh yeah, I forgot. These are the speech ladies. And then he starts to cry again. Yeah, he knows. <laughs> and so then we said, oh, no. And we didn't even know at that point that he'd already had this conversation with his mom about, quote, speech. And so, um, and then we said, but we knew probably what he was thinking. And so we said, oh, no, we don't do that kind of say this and say that stuff. We play. We just play, just like today. So then he was happy. Yeah. So trust. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're yeah, right. It takes right. time. Do you often start a lot of your, uh, with new clients, do you often go to their homes first before having them come here? Always. You do. We always start with a home movie. So we can just, without the accountability factor, you know how that is. When you feel accountable, you don't feel like you can really just sit back and observe. Mm-hmm. So we have this movie, and we really want to know what the child and the parent environment is like before some other variable, i.e. us, comes into the picture. And so that we always start with that. We always start with a parent. Um, if we can, we have them tell us stories. Like call us on the phone. It doesn't take a lot of time. Interestingly, we have them just call on our phone, you know, just talk, just talk about their kid, anything they would really like us to know about their child. So it's not like a typical kind of intake, you Mm -hmm. know, with all the history, history. I mean, we get that ultimately, but that's not how we necessarily start. And so then um, we get some stories. We know what a parent is thinking. And then we always do a home visit before the child comes in the clinic. And how we structure that is we just say to the, the parent, do whatever you would normally be doing. Just if you're going to be playing downstairs on the, you know, jumping off the couch, then just do that. Leave the door unlocked. We'll walk in. We'll be like, you know, Aunt Sally who came by for a visit. So you don't have to stop. Don't have to say hi. Don't have to have your child say hi. No clipboard. No nothing. We just come downstairs or don't. Maybe just wait upstairs. But you continue what you're doing. And whomever is going to be the primary clinician always goes first. So that's the face the child sees first. So in our case, because I might just be involved in the in the diagnostic, but not necessarily in the, the treatment, uh, Bryn might be the first person to go downstairs. The child sees smiling, beautiful Bryn, and then she just kind of hangs out on the periphery like, oh, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Mom and child are still engaged, and then she kind of slips in the back door. Mm-hmm. And then the way we would say it, and the way we say it to parents ahead of time, is we, we try to just become mom or dad. And then so once it, it appears that Bryn can kind of take over the mom role, whatever that is, then mom will maybe slip away a little bit and maybe come talk to me. And maybe that's when we get out the stack of reports. Okay, we're going to wrap up the first part of this podcast here. I want to thank you so much for listening today. Please go to the website at conversationsandspeech.com to get all those links and show notes. And stay tuned for the second part of this podcast coming soon.